Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Helicopters, the only podcast in the world celebrating helicopter explosions in film. Now, there are any number of conspiracy theories that continue to capture the public's imagination. Did aliens land at Roswell? Who really shot JFK? And is the world secretly run by flickering-tongued lizards called the Illuminati? One of the most enduring conspiracy theories is whether the Apollo 11 mission really landed a man on the surface of the moon. That idea was the inspiration for 1978 thriller Capricorn 1, which imagined how NASA might fake a man landing on the surface of Mars. So given that we're talking of massive frauds that need to be exposed, I'm joined by a man no one should ever trust. Returning to the show once again is my good friend and exploding helicopter scribe, Joe Clift. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, thank you, Will. Um... Looking forward to speaking about another conspiracy theory. What was the last conspiracy theory that we talked about? I think uh, when we were talking about angels and demons, there was a very much a conspiracy at work. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. And, you know, that film's definitely got the claim to being one of the most ridiculous films ever made. And uh, I know you didn't particularly enjoy that. So uh, hopefully I've made up for that by uh, by choosing Capricorn One for you to uh, to look at this one, because I think this is a good movie with good exploding helicopter action. So uh, am I going to be in the doghouse again with you today? I think we can safely say this is going to be a much more positive podcast, I think, than the abomination of angels and demons. Well, before we get stuck into the main course, why don't we whet our appetites with a filmic hors d'oeuvre? So, Joe, do you want to tell me about something interesting you've seen lately? So I saw uh, a week ago High Rise. I went to an early Q&A with director Ben Wheatley, and uh, I really enjoyed the film. It was just a really good, brutal look at how a society can quite rapidly descend into chaos. thought there were... Good performances from Tom Hiddleston and Jeremy Irons. Yeah, I was very impressed with it. It did leave me, uh, initially when I came out of the film, I was really sort of a bit unsure as to what I'd actually seen. It was quite a bit of a, a brutal watch, not just on the architecture, but on the uh, on the subject matter as well. But it's one of those ones that I thought about it quite a lot in the week since and and yeah, on, on balance, I thought it was a really good film. Well, I saw High Rise this week and uh, I've come away with a very different perception to yourself. I thought this film was a mess. There, for me, wasn't uh, High Rise. The novel is full of interesting ideas, but this film didn't really, for me, seem to know quite what to do with them. The, the narrative within the film, I just thought was an absolute uh, shambles. And... <laughs> The whole idea of the film is that there are these sort of class barriers which delineate the the people within this block of flats. But quite what is separating those people from, you know, mixing with each other is never really sort of communicated within the film. And also what actually causes the breakdown of order within the building is, again, never really communicated in the film. There are some hints around power cuts but they never really i don't know it just doesn't really feel like that was a proper engine for the, the chaos and the carnage that ensues ultimately within the film so yeah as i say i came away from this thinking it was frankly a bit of a mess i can see what you mean i, th- I don't think the i don't think they've really sort of tried to direct like a lot of the the causes for the breakdown i suppose uh, a lot of that's left to different interpretations but I was, I suppose, less fussed about that and just willing to uh, roll with it. Uh, obviously, like the descent sort of 
happens pretty rapidly so there isn't to be quite honest a lot of um a lot of time to really dwell on what the what necessarily the initial causes of it might be but other other opinions are available well i'm glad that we could have a bit of a barney over this film if we're uh, in danger of going to be agreeing about capricorn one i i I never like to uh to have a a holy civil exchange with you joe so uh, it's good (laughs) It's good to get a bit of tension in early. Um, hopefully that the feeling of... the feeling is very much mutual. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, thanks for that, Joe. Well, the countdown for our discussion of Capricorn One has started, so let's head over to Mission Control and hear a stentorian voiced man give us an abbreviated synopsis of the plot. Every split second of this historic flight, every intimate detail, every heartbeat, was monitored by Mission Control in Houston. This is Capricorn One. We have landed. As millions all over the world watched and listened, there's only one small catch. It never happened. It's all a lie. A fantastic $30 billion hoax. Something's wrong, and I don't know what it is. Dig deep enough, you might uncover the truth. Those signals couldn't have come from 300 miles. But the odds are, you'll never live to tell it. Freeze! I'm not moving an inch. Something's wrong. Something big. They know I'm onto it and they try to kill me. Who's they? I can't tell you. We are dead. These people are capable of anything. You sound so close. It's hard to believe you really are that far away in space. It's hard for me to believe it, too. You're up to something. You want my help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. Capricorn 1, this is Houston. Capricorn 1, we show red on the heat shield. Capricorn 1, this is Houston. We show red on the heat shield. Do you read? Capricorn 1, the mission that never got off the ground. So Capricorn 1 came out in 1978. It's set in the near future where, despite dwindling interest in space exploration, NASA is attempting to land an astronaut on the surface of Mars. But when a technical fault is discovered, dooming the mission to failure, NASA bigwigs are faced with a terrible dilemma. Own up to their mistake and risk their future funding, or try to fool the world and fake a successful Martian landing. So... Moments before they think the mission is about to begin, the astronauts are blackmailed into going along with the fraud. Meanwhile, a maverick journalist begins to suspect there is something terribly wrong and that the Mars mission might actually be one huge hoax. And when a crucial part of the conspiracy goes wrong, the astronauts realise the only way to save their lives is to try and expose the fraud themselves. Capricorn One was written and directed by Peter Hyams, who also made the space thrillers Outland and 2010, the actually pretty good sequel to 2001, along with the die-hard knockoff Sudden Death, which we looked at on our last podcast. The film stars a host of well-known faces. The astronauts are played by Charles Brolin, Sam Walterston, and everyone's least favourite celebrity, O.J. Simpson. Amongst the supporting cast are Telly Savalas, Karen Black, Elliot Gould, and the wonderful Hal Holbrook. Joe, I know this was a first-time watch for you, and you pointedly refused to tell me what you made of this film in advance of recording, so I'm keen to find out what you made of Capcom 1. Well, having been given Angels and Demons last time I was on with this, obviously I was looking to enjoy something this time, and <laughs> luckily, well, I actually really enjoyed this. Uh, I'm 
I, to be quite honest, knew absolutely nothing about the film going into it, other than what had been a slightly cryptic description that you you gave me in terms of it being a conspiracy theory about a Mars uh, Mars landing, and didn't really know who was in it, so went into it quite sketchy on the details. And this was, yeah, a, a really interesting film, and what I liked about it was that I thought it was very much a, a film of its time. So you, obviously it's sort of come in that like initial post-space race period where you sort of had, what, the six-man missions to the moon and that like really short space of time. But then there'd been nothing really in sort of the six years since then. So you've got basically a US society that's already already getting a bit sort of switched off to sort of space race. But you've also got the, the, the same period of time that you've also had like the political controversies with with Watergate and Nixon's resignation. So this feels very much like a country that's sort of willing to to start doubting everything. You've suddenly got the moon landing hoaxes that are coming to sort of the the fore, and yeah, I think this is this is very much a good look back at. Um, something that's very very specific to the late 70s well i think you make some great points about the context or the time that this film came out and you rightly point to the watergate scandal which probably made the american public much more sort of cynical about uh, their political masters you also had the the Viet, you know comes against the the background of the vietnam war very um, divisive and controversial conflict um, you also had a whole host of political assassinations in the previous years uh, with JFK, Robert Kennedy and also Martin Luther King all being uh, assassinated. So I think the sort of 70s is something of a golden era for uh, conspiracy thrillers with uh, films like Executive Action, which was a sort of look at the Kennedy assassination and things like the Parallax View, All the President's Men and Three Days of the Condor. And so Capricorn One, I think, you know, is, is part of that cycle of films. And I think it's a great thriller it has a very seductive proposition this idea that man's greatest feat in this case landing on mars is actually one big lie and i think this thriller is uh, is a really uh, you know stands up today and yeah i'm glad uh, i'm glad we uh, pick, i managed to pick a film which you enjoyed joe especially after angels and demons Hopefully we've got plenty of things that we'll still disagree about on this, but uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, my overall feeling is that it's uh, it's a really good watch. So as this is a conspiracy thriller, we really should take a look at the scheme to fake the Mars landing in more detail. Uh, what happens is that moments before the mission is about to launch, the astronauts are pulled out of the rocket. They're told that a fault in the life support system would have meant they'd all have died long before reaching Mars. Um, they're also told that NASA couldn't afford for this mission to fail and that faking a landing was the only way to to guarantee a future space program. So there's an attempt to persuade them out of loyalty to NASA to join the conspiracy, but it's only really when the lives of the astronauts' families are threatened that they agree to take part. So, Joe, how did that part of the film play out for you? Um, If you were one of the astronauts, would you have gone along with the conspiracy at that moment? I think for this one, you have to sort of think about, I guess, like, the uh, Roland's character, Brew, knows the NASA guy played by Hal Holbrook, uh, Dr. Calloway, quite well. They, they've known each other for 16 years. I think they sort of talk about, like, being present at the, at the birth of his kids and things like that. So clearly, like, some of the astronauts involved have a very close relationship with Hal Holbrook's character, who is essentially trying to sell this big fake to the to get the astronauts to the consent on it. So I think on, on that perspective, it's it's 
kind of believable. You can sort of also sympathise with Hal Holbrook uh, when he when he's making the speech appealing to them uh, to their sort of their like loyalty to NASA and in terms of the, like we've we've made a, an enormous blunder here. You would have died anyway if you'd have gone into space uh, on this if we'd have just kept it quiet and just let this let this happen. Um, going back to what we sort of talked about before about like the general malaise in sort of society at that point, he's sort of appealing to their their sort of sense of not wanting to add yet another reason for people to give up on on some of the sort of dreams that they uh, particularly hold dear. I think you make some great points again there, Joe, especially about not wanting to contribute to yeah, a further kind of malaise in the sort of American uh, public there. And there is a I think the first thing to say is there is a fantastic speech here by Hal Holbrook, who mm-hmm. has to do a huge exposition dump. But but he is such a good actor that he actually manages to make that seem like a really interesting piece of acting. And I think he's one of those actors who could read a phone book and you'd be gripped by it. And I think his performance in that scene is absolutely crucial to the sort of selling this idea, not just to the astronauts, but also to the uh, to the viewer as well. And I think the astronauts buying into this idea is the biggest hurdle i think that this film has Mm. to has to get over and uh, you make uh, points about how how holbrook's character has a a long-standing relationship with brubaker and i think that's really important that that's established because i think again that helps persuade you that yes that these astronauts might just in the moment go along with that especially when the kind of the cherry on the cake is uh, is the fact that their families may all be uh, killed um if they don't that's quite quite a persuasive part of the uh (laughs) of how Holbrook's um, uh, pitch to them. But also, I think the, the important thing in how he put, how he sort of gets across um, when he delivers that, you get a sense that also his character's in danger as well. You get, you get the impression that the people that are also threatening the astronauts' families might be also sort of applying a bit of pressure on Hal Holbrook's character himself. Well, that's an interesting point you brought up because it's certainly something that I noticed on this rewatch is that um, Hal Holbrook's character, who is the who's kind of engineering this conspiracy, is referring to people who are above him, who are higher up than him, who are obviously putting pressure on him to make this work but we never really find out who they are sort of they're referred to in very nebulous terms um holbrook uses a euphemism calling them grown-ups and uh, you know <laughs> uh, and you know so you, you just well you just think who actually really is behind this conspiracy and it's not really i think there's enough forward momentum in the plot that you don't really get hung up on that particular aspect but it was something that i noticed on this rewatch and it did leave me wondering okay who who really is behind this and I like the fact that NASA are the the bad guys in this. Uh, it's it's quite a, a, a bold thing to do, really, at a time when NASA is sort of being accused of of having hoaxed uh, things like the moon. It's it's quite a bold decision to actually make them the chief enemy, I guess, in in this particular one. But it's also NASA themselves that are also pulling the wool over the eyes of people in NASA as well. Now, we should definitely talk about the mechanics of how NASA planned to pull off this deception. So only a handful of people know about the conspiracy. Uh, Tape recordings of practice missions are used to deceive technicians at Cape Canaveral that the astronauts are still on board. The idea is then to fake TV pictures of the Mars landing on a specially created film set. 
occasional live link-ups with the rocket are also faked from the secret studio in order to keep up the pretense. How did that element of the scheme work for you, Joe? It's probably as plausible as they could make it. The short terms of keeping Houston in the dark made sense because he wanted to sort of restrict as much information that could leak out to the public as possible. I guess long term, there would always be the fear, though, that you'd have one of the astronauts, once they'd gone back into into sort of the relative safety post-mission, that they were going to, at some stage, spill the beans. So, I mean, this is very much like a, a short-term fix than, that they're putting a lot of faith in. Yes, the tape recordings that are used, I think that's quite a, quite a neat idea and one that would conceivably work, although I think there are sort of limits within that because all it would really need is one off-the-cuff question or remark from somebody at the Houston Control Centre and the whole gig would be blown. So there is a bit of a sort of a slight flaw in that part of the uh, deception. I think the other aspect, though, that uh, perhaps troubled me a little bit about the kind of the mechanics of how they were going to sell this deception was the faked footage of the astronauts on the <laughs> surface of uh, Mars itself. You know, there's a very there's an impressive set, in fairness. We see the kind of the craft that they would have landed on the surface in and there's a you know a suitable martian looking backdrop which on a kind of scratchy tv signal you probably think well you know no one's seen the surface of mars before <laughs> this is probably going to you know they could probably get away with depicting it in this way but they come up against the uh, problem of the fact that they these astronauts are supposed to be in a reduced gravity environment in order to uh, convey that uh, camera crews who are who are producing this fake footage have to uh, introduce slow motion into the feed that they're sending back to earth or supposedly back to earth to try and create the illusion that these are astronauts in a reduced sort of gravity environment and um, how did those particular <laughs> moments strike you joe i mean if i'd have been watching it on tv at the time i'd have been obviously calling that is massively fake look how obviously <laughs> fake that is that i think stretched the the limits of plausibility i thought it was um perfectly believable that you had i'm not sure what you thought to the the commentary by the astronauts as they were descending the ladder but it was just so dully uh, <laughs> uh, delivered it, it could have quite easily been an, an armstrong or aldrin delivering it <laughs> Uh, given how much enthusiasm there was. Well, if NASA were trying to rejuvenate interest in the space program, they should have uh, given Brew a better script to work with when he landed on the surface than uh, I'm on the ladder, <laughs> I'm going down the ladder, <laughs> the ground is solid. So it. it's a bit dusty. Yeah, it wasn't the most inspiring uh, piece of commentary about uh, this historic epoch-making moment, but you know, uh, not not a problem that we really need to worry about in terms of enjoying the uh, the film. So the sort of deception seems to be going uh, quite well at this point, apart from the fact that a NASA technician who by chance happens to be friends with a journalist who's played by Elliot Gould has noticed a glitch which suggests that the transmissions from Capricorn 1 aren't coming from a rocket millions of miles away. He mysteriously disappears and an increasingly suspicious Gould begins to investigate the Capricorn 1 mission more closely. What did you make of this aspect of the plot? I thought this was probably one of the weaker bits of it, if I'm if I'm particularly honest. I should say, first off, this was difficult for me to necessarily hold as particularly plausible, just just on the fact that it's uh it's Elliot Gould who 
I have not seen a lot of films with him in, so I probably know him more as being Ross's dad from Friends. It took me quite a while to actually shake that image off because he's quite a sort of jokey character from from the onset. He's having a bit of a laugh with the journalist in the in the film. So when they when they sort of try and make it quite a dramatic thriller with him sort of trying to track down the the truth here. It took a while for me to actually sort of accept that Elliot Gould's character was was plausible for this. And there were quite a few quite bonkers scenes, really. I think the car scene where he has his brakes cut just seemed to be filmed in a way that was almost... You almost felt as though the director was trying to go for a, a slightly north by northwest feel to it. But the camera sort of at times just, just like panned back to Elliot Gould, who just sort of had a... A slightly, no, it didn't look quite as alarmed as perhaps I would have thought he would be. Well, I think some of your problems with Elliot Gould's character stems from your shocking cinematic ignorance. Um, because, <laughs> <laughs> because his persona in this film is very much in line with the type of actor and the films that he was making um, during the 1970s. So he was in the uh, film MASH which was a very satirical comedy. He was also then in The Long Goodbye as uh, Philip Marlowe, as this wise-cracking, down-at-heel detective who's in a kind of quite a sort of notable comedy of the time called Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice. So he had a very established persona coming into this film, and that persona, I think, fits with the, with the character that he's playing here. And I think by having Elliot Gould and by playing off his established persona at the time i think the film that adds an extra element to the film well obviously i'm not gonna not gonna disagree with your you highlighting my cinematic ignorance which you often love to do on a regular basis your shocking 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 cinematic ignorance i mean don't get me wrong i've I've seen them in oceans 11 will but um (laughs) so it's not the it's not the only thing i've seen them in but going back to the character that he plays i think my problem with that is that it was sort of inter- interspersed with sort of making him quite a comedic character. So I'm specifically thinking about the scene back with his editor where he's, he's trying to sort of convince him to sort of go and give him like 48 more hours. Um, and the editor just brings up like a, what feels like a backlog of bizarre conspiracy theories that he'd previously tried to report on and been utterly abysmal at. So... In terms of credibility, it doesn't doesn't really wash with me. Well, one of the points that you have raised, I think I can agree with. So within the film, Gould latches onto this conspiracy and there are several attempts to assassinate him. And so, uh, as you've already talked about, Joe, they, they try to bump off Gould by sabotaging the brakes on his car. Although that doesn't really explain why his car continually accelerates. Um, <laughs> that's uh, a bit puzzling, but uh, we won't sort of dwell on that. There's also an attempt to shoot him as well which is one of the worst attempts to shoot anybody i've i've ever seen because they attempt to shoot him they miss but they don't ever sort of do a follow-up second shot which is rather puzzling it's clearly i think arrogance of the of the shooter in question presumably only brought one bullet because he only thought he would need one (laughs) because it was such a good shot and uh no didn't have a second 
And that's a little bit difficult to accept because the NASA technician who is Gould's friend disappears very slickly in a very well-engineered kidnap operation. And he's then essentially almost sort of written out of history because we see there's a scene where Gould goes to his apartment and there's somebody else living there. And all of the historical records show that this lady has been living there for, you know, a year or 18 months. So there is no trace left of this NASA technician. So on the one hand these shadowy figures behind this conspiracy can make somebody completely disappear off the face of the earth, but then they repeatedly bungle their attempts to uh, bump off Elliot Gould. It's possible that they had different people working on uh, on each of those elements. So maybe when all of the resources were being pulled back to, to concentrate on the astronauts, they left like the, um, the intern of the, uh, <laughs> of, the, of the evil grouping to basically try and bump off the, the journalist. Well, this film's got quite a lot of well-known uh, actors in it. We've already sort of talked a, l- a little bit about Elliot Gould. I think the other person in the cast that we really need to talk about is uh, Telly Savalas. <laughs> Joe, where do we start with Telly Savalas in this film? When Kochak comes up uh, sort of towards the, the final bit, just as we're really approaching the, the helicopter scene in question, it just seemed... a uh, a really quite random bit of casting. And that's not to say that it wasn't um, wasn't enjoyable. Bits of the comedy involving his character were some of the most enjoyable bits of the film, ultimately. Initially, it was... It really pulled me out of the... Out of the film initially, uh, it was quite a shock to sort of see him cast in that role. It is a wonderfully eccentric turn. So uh, Telly Savalas plays this pilot who earns a living dusting crops out in the uh, the middle of a desert which is rather perplexing because it doesn't appear as if there anything could grow in that particular area <laughs> um, but uh, again we won't get bogged down in in small details like that and yeah it's a wonderfully eccentric turn here so Telly Savalas's uh, character seems to be a sort of borderline nutcase not to put too uh, too fine a point on it because he seems to think everybody in the world bar himself is a, a pervert but joe i don't know have you ever seen the film the dirty dozen i feel uh, this is gonna lead to another another bit of criticism well i i have not seen the film okay well it obviously fits within my my view of your uh, cinematic watching habits well if you go and watch uh, the dirty dozen telly savalis actually plays a similar character in that film that he does in this film he plays um, a kind of a, an unhinged convict who is brought uh, into this military mission that is being engineered so uh, you know he has got some previous in this uh, in this particular field but obviously by the time that he made this film he would have been best known as the sort of genial uh, lollipop sucking cop Kojak so uh, yeah it was a rather it is a very very bizarre part of the film going to the other actors I guess um, I'm most familiar with Sam Watson from uh, the newsroom and then of course uh, we've got as you mentioned before everybody's everybody's favorite OJ Simpson plays quite a believable role in misleading the public. Uh, but before that, he, uh, he starred in this film. <laughs> we, uh, we need to be, uh, we need to be, uh, we need to tread carefully here, Joe. So, uh, please, uh, let's, I, uh... I, I think we've, I think we've said everything that we need to say. Although talking of the astronauts, the the key astronaut within this film is uh, is Brubaker, who's played by uh, Charles Brolin. And Joe, I know uh, 
we always like to try and uh, engineer some sort of reference to uh, Roger Moore into uh, any podcast any podcast we do. Uh, but though we don't actually need to try too hard, because I don't know if you were aware, but apparently Charles Brolin was in the running to play James Bond in Octopussy. I was not aware of that. Well, apparently at the time, Roger Moore didn't really want to come back to do a further Bond movie, and... Brolin was one of the actors who was screen tested for the uh, role of James Bond and apparently um, there's a DVD or Blu-ray edition of Octopussy where you can see Brolin's uh, screen tests but then Moore decided to come back and the producers obviously wanted to sort of continue with the with the known quantity in the role rather than try and establish a new actor in the role so I don't know if you saw something in his performance in this film which suggested that he might have made a, a good or interesting James Bond. I don't see that at all. I think um, particularly uh, at that particular time, you wanted, you definitely wanted a nice Roger Moore role. Brolin would have brought a slightly more more gritty element to it that perhaps I think people people weren't ready for that in the middle of uh, the Golden Moore era. Thanks, Joe. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action. Why haven't you seen To Kill a Mockingbird? I was too busy rewatching the Marvel Cinematic Universe films again. Why haven't you seen Mad Max? Do you know how hard it is to track down a copy of The Return of Captain Invincible? Why haven't you seen The Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Did you know that Road to Perdition was originally a comic book? This is Bubba Wheat from Flights, Tights, and Movie Nights, and on each episode of FilmWise, my guest introduces me to a film that they're passionate about and I've never seen before, and in return, I introduce them to a comic book or superhero film that they're curious about. Find it every other week at FilmWise.com, iTunes, or Stitcher. We're back, and now we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action, and we've got one or possibly two exploding helicopters to discuss. Hopefully Joe is going to help me get to the bottom of that. Before uh, I do that, Will, um, just on the topic of uh, cinematic ignorance, um, we're, we are, of course, talking about the well-known actor James Brolin rather than the <laughs> the unknown <laughs> actor of Charles Brolin that you mentioned previous to the uh, previous to the break. Oh, I was doing so well. I was up on the moral high ground, and now you've marched me back down. <laughs> this is a disaster. I, I, I hopefully edit this out. Edit this out. Yeah, hopefully this can be sorted out in the edit. <laughs> but um, back to matters exploding helicopter related. Our favourite fiery delight occurs towards the end of the film. Elliot Gould is trying to find the astronauts and he's been flown around the area in an old biplane by Telly Savalas' crazed crop duster. As they're searching for Brolin, Gould and Savalis find the surviving astronaut and pluck him to safety whilst pursued by two dark helicopters. This leads to an impressive aerial dogfight between the plane and the two choppers, with Brolin clinging grimly to the plane's wing. With jagged rocks and hazardous terrain aplenty, it becomes clear how these two choppers will meet their inevitable demise. Savalis plunges the crop duster towards an incoming cliff face, barking at Ghoul to pull the lever and release the crop spray. Temporarily blinded, our hapless chopper pilots career into the rock face, 
Chopper 1 hits the rock face and crumples, dropping like a stone, but without any explosion. Fortunately, the special effects guys restore the world's natural order and have the second helicopter ignite like an overheating chip pan. Joe, what did you make of the chopper fireball action in Capricorn 1? I really liked this this double duster death. And <laughs> I thought it was... Obviously, it comes at the end of, of what's been quite a quite a, a, a dramatic bit of flying we've got the crazed duster pilots performing all sorts of aerial maneuvers for some reason doing uh, a loop the loop when you've got like an astronaut clinging to the wing and barely able to hold on the explosion in question i'm glad that you picked up on the fact that the the first helicopter doesn't explode we we very nearly don't have a, uh, a film to talk about uh, but luckily the second explosion i think sort of nicely you sort of uh, again have the have the sort of uh collision through the cloud and then sort of an explosion as it's descending really well done and i think it it sort of brings to the end um the sort of character arc of of two of the the best characters i think in this film which are the helicopters themselves who we haven't really focused on up to this point but i think they they have a uh character-esque quality to them in in sort of a number of different parts of the of some of the crucial scenes of the of the film well i would completely agree with you i think that uh, and i think you you hit the nail on the head with describing the helicopters actually as characters in themselves because we see them throughout the sort of final third of the film as they hunt for the astronauts who have gone on the run in this desert location and the helicopters move together in this very sort of sinister synchronized fashion almost as if they're communicating uh, telepathically and it really helps create a, pa- a creepy atmosphere and you get this sort of sense of these bigger powers at work here and there's a real sort of sense of menace as you see these helicopters fly in very tight synchronized uh, formation um, throughout that portion of the film it almost looks kind of quite dangerous in itself i'm not sure like whether that's a natural distance that the helicopters would normally fly in but as though there wasn't really that much gap between the rotors on either of the either of the choppers and also an interesting aspect of the portrayal of these helicopters at the end of this film is that there is a sort of a, a kind of common phrase which has been used in sort of conspiracy theory circles uh, as a way of referring to nebulous darker powers as uh, referring to them as the black helicopters which is believed to be a sort of reference back to this film and the fact that these two helicopters play such a sort of central role in um, trying to enforce this conspiracy of the of the Mars landing. I was completely unaware of that. Well, I'd like to bring you a, a, a few little uh, factual tidbits and morsels, Joe. So uh, hopefully that will be, you can file that away for, uh, for future use. But one aspect, though, of this particular sequence that did amuse me was the fact um, I did pity poor Brolin in this particular moment because... You know, he has been blackmailed into possibly the biggest conspiracy in human history. He's spent months in a warehouse perpetrating this fraud. He's then had to spend days walking around in a desert. And he then, in this moment of crisis, he then finds Elliot Gould waving at him from a biplane piloted by, you know, Telesavalis. Um, It's probably not the rescue you hoped for in that particular moment. I don't think he was really planning for that to be the the escape strategy. Beggars can't be choosers, I think, in this situation. So yeah, the mad duster pilot it has to be. 
Just going back to the actual helicopter explosions themselves, uh, do you think the pilots, I know they were having crop dust sprayed in their face, but do you think they really should have been able to uh, avoid those rock faces? I think they, they certainly should have been able to avoid all of that, but they've already demonstrated a, a slightly lax um, approach to, to flying these choppers anyway, I think, uh, in terms of the sort of element of, of needless danger they're willing to put themselves in. So uh, in that respect, perhaps it works. Well, I think that wraps things up nicely for this show. Joe, thanks for joining me once again. Thank you, Will. Uh, very happy to come back and point out any future errors. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I must get you back on very soon, Joe. <laughs> Don't forget to check out the Exploding Helicopter website, follow us on Twitter, or just spread the word about uh, what we're doing. We'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. We let them sweat for a while, then we give them helicopters. Right up the ass.